Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome the hilarious Kate Kennedy to the podcast today, author of the brilliant romp, One in a Millennial. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. When I went back and looked at some of these shows that I loved, I noticed that the writer's room was all adult men, with the exception of one or two episodes in Save by the Bell's case. And I just thought, wow, it is so interesting that we talk about diversity and representation, like, yes, of course, who's on the screen matters, but who's in the writer's room and who's telling the stories really matters too, because that's where stereotypes abound, because those men were not writing Jesse Spano as an example of an actual feminist. She was written as a character from an adult male's response to like second wave feminist stereotypes. And they found that type of woman irritating. So they wrote Jesse as an irritating character. And it just was an interesting thing for me to explore the way I internalized themes from pop culture, thinking about who was writing this and when did it contribute to a stereotype versus when did it communicate an authentic experience. So says Kate Kennedy, a brilliantly astute historian of millennial culture, which she explores in depth in One in a Millennial on friendship, feelings, fangirls and fitting in a best-selling book that's part memoir, but really a love letter and a critique of the culture so many of us grew up in. As part of my book tour, I went on Kate's podcast, Be There in Five, where I was immediately smitten with her intelligence and deep, deep knowledge of the programming that shaped our consciousness, from Jesse Spano's feminism and Saved by the Bell and the laugh track it inspired, to the way so many women and girls were taught that our interests were dumb, shallow, and silly or to use the parlance of the day, basic. In One in a Millennial, Kennedy points to this long tradition of the veneration of action figures, Marvel and football, and the deprecation of pretty much anything that girls and women value, whether it's romance novels, the Spice Girls, or American Girl dolls. While her point is not new, and certainly aligned with our summer of the Barbie movie, Taylor Swift and Beyonce, her exploration of how it shaped her own mind and childhood and the way she experiences herself now as a result of it is revelatory and something we explore in today's conversation. It's funny, I'm not a millennial. Do you use astrological terms? How do you describe it, Kate? I'm on the cusp. I'm young Gen X. <laughs> I think it's a zillennial with an X, not a Z. Oh, interesting. But is that yes. Gen Z millennial or what about X? X annual. I, mean, I don't know if the, if the pronunciation is <laughs> different, but it's technically an X annual. Okay. Which, but audibly, that does sound, sound the same as the Gen Z millennial cusp, millennial. So I'm not totally sure. But yeah, the cusp works. <laughs> the cusp works. I'm on the cusp. So as I was reading your book, I got most of the references. And it's funny as being like not an older millennial, but just older than the older millennials recognizing those moments and wanting to participate in them and doing that to some extent while at the same time chastising myself for being too old. Like I had an American Girl doll. I had Samantha. But I feel like I was like, I think I'm too old for this. Samantha's the dark haired one. 
Yes. Yeah, with the very Samantha. fancy clothing. Yeah, I am a Samantha, <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, I related hard specifically to this, the way that our culture is programmed, which is what your entire book is about, the way that you felt programmed as both a millennial and a woman or a girl, and then the way that we start to feel bad about that, right? And or like these interests are sad, pathetic, embarrassing, trite, airheady in a way that men and boys are never, nobody is chastising and shaming boys for their fascination with G.I. Joe or Marvel or Star Wars, right? And even beyond like interest, I was thinking about your book a lot recently because even uh, the way behavior is coded, like most of my outstanding qualities, like being observational and really curious, for example, that somehow gets branded to like nosy or a busybody or like loving to talk with your friends gets branded as gossip. It was kind of interesting writing the book, realizing everything that I kind of enjoy or pride myself on is yeah so easily coded to be something negative when it doesn't have to be. No. And there's this idea, and we talked a bit about this on your podcast, you know, having done things in my career that would be perceived as not, I don't know, anti-intellectual. Some of the books that I've ghostwritten that are part of pop culture, mass culture, working at a magazine about shopping, and working through that in real time, through the cultural criticism of it, and putting consumerism and the environment aside, because that at the time wasn't the complaint. Nobody was conscious really about fast fashion and its effects. But working through how being at Lucky Magazine and how deprecated it was, it was mocked, even though it was the fastest growing magazine in the history of Condé Nast, women loved it. We were like the first blog. We were the first people to profile real women and real women's style and different bodies. But it was wild to be there and to be like, I can't be here because I'm being shamed for having these quote unquote, like light, superficial, silly, stupid interests and qualities. And this is so persistent, right? This is what your entire book is about. And you are like a professor of millennial studies. Has anyone offered you a <laughs> teaching position? No. In between eras of jobs, I've applied for some. But I think that's kind of the, I guess the fun part about my job as kind of a casual commentator, or as I like to say, a self-appointed DIY internet radio host, because I guess that's kind of what a podcast is. It's like I can comment and have fun with it without having to be too intellectual or too research-based. I think this book's kind of a balance in like, these are just my experiences and my opinions, but I try to underscore it with like, there are broader trends here that a lot of millennials will relate to, but it's not a science. But there are similar themes in terms of how our coming of age intersects with social and cultural and economic, you know, circumstances. But yeah, I don't know if I have an adequate cross section of all millennials enough to be a professor. That'd be cool, though. No, I mean, I do think you're a historian. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. But I also <laughs> recognize like the dance. I mean, at the beginning where you write. There are so many ways I wish to preface this book. When you have an internet career and become aware of all the eyes and ears, you slowly develop a superpower called the disclaimer. Even if it's at the expense of the work speaking for itself, you start to prioritize preventative qualifiers. They get lengthier and lengthier, usually as a result of the painful experience of people misunderstanding your intentions or requiring your work to cater to their individual needs to be allowed to exist. This is very, very challenging for me, hence this very, very long intro. I'm just going to cut to it and say that you are a historian. This book, One in a Millennial, which again, disclaimer in the title, <laughs> but you are highlighting huge cultural trends that I think even if listeners didn't feel directly influenced by NSYNC or Miley Cyrus, any of the other people that you're speaking about. You are a historian of a time in a way that like where there probably aren't academic historians because they would deprecate this as silly. And meanwhile, this is like deep in our consciousness, right? Which is what your book is exploring as both like a loving embrace of the culture that formed you and also a criticism or an awakening to the ways in which you perceive yourself in the world. And it's interesting to hear you disclaimer because 
it's exactly that however many years later, mm-hmm. right? And we all know how to do it. I read a ton and every woman I know is disclaimering, stating their identities and their privilege. I mean, I think maybe 2% of men do that. Mm-hmm. It's not an expectation of men, only of girls. It's really, really interesting. If if I could have included a 13th or 14th chapter in the book, it, because I didn't include a lot about my podcasting career because it's newer relative to most of my story. There are certain things that I think you need distance from to reflect on adequately. And I'm in the middle of this career I really like. But I will say the exercise of performing your identity as an entertainer and all that comes with it has fundamentally changed my brain in a way that I don't even know if I fully understand yet where I think if I wasn't a podcaster and had, you know, didn't live in a feedback loop, I would have just written the book and been like, here it is and all its glory. But I'm so trained and predisposed now to apologize for everything I credit myself for, to disclaim everything. And it's an example of how these things are so deeply internalized and a form of conditioning where I can intellectualize these things all I want and explain them, but I still am also actively experiencing them and implementing them in my life in ways that I wish I could separate from. Yeah. You know, like you probably, I wrote, I don't know, 18 versions of my intro. And that seems really extreme as I say that, but it's true. And as I was trying to find different ways in, there was one early version that was essentially just me explicating to the reader all of the things that I'm not. I wasn't (laughs) conscious of it, but I was like, I'm not a theologian. I'm not an academic. I don't have a PhD in religious stuff. I mean, on and on. And a friend read it and was like, this is kind of perverse. Like, why don't you say who you are, not who you're not? Wow. I mean, I have one of those versions, too. And that's so true. It's like, before I get to who I am, I want to be clear that I'm aware of everything you're going to say I'm not. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to anticipate all of your criticism. And I'm already on my knees. I'm already keeping myself small. I already know my place. I already know that you're going to dismiss this as sort of the ramblings of a millennial about culture. And this is the other thing I think you do exceptionally well. I don't know if it's a function of podcasting. You talked about it as a feedback loop, but I think the feedback loop can be quite positive. And I think having hosted a show prior to this for a long time and getting a lot of feedback and a lot of people would say, like, we're the same person or you, we have so many of the same stories. And I think we're at this moment in culture. And I applaud you for this because this is your book does this exceptionally well. Father Richard Rohr calls it the cosmic egg, where he says that, you know, there's the me story, which should exist sort of like a nesting doll inside the we story. And then there's the story. And right now we're in this period where it's all me story, right? It's like my exceptionality. This is me. This is my story. My story matters. And some of this is great, but it gets kind of tedious after a while because nobody is connecting it to the we story. And Mm. theoretically, the the story. And what I think is so powerful about so many of these essays, whether it's an essay about a day bed, (laughs) the day bed, I loved the day, (laughs) I wanted a day bed desperately, (laughs) or Bed Bath & Beyond, or any of these other cultural moments, American Girl Dolls and their backstories. It's a we story. It really is a we story. And I can say that as someone who's not even of your generation. (laughs) I I love hearing that. And honestly... Something I thought a lot about was kind of to your point earlier about like, do we have historical record of people like, you know, how they lived in these times? And it's like so many books, so much art like is about truly exceptional people who really do something different. And I kind of look back on my life and from talking to a lot of listeners over the years, I'm kind of like, you know, but what about those of us that were kind of like programmed to stick with the status quo that like avoided being unique at all costs? What about those of us that kind of like chased brands and versions of ourselves as a means to get through the world a little bit more easily? Like what are our stories and do they count? Not all of us have been a blazing individual since day one. And I think there's a lot to be learned from this, my kind of commonplace existence. And I, you know, could caveat that term a million times, but even just to the term of, in a sense of being called like literally basic over the years, like there's kind of a type of existence that was easily not celebrated for being pretty regular. You know, I had average grades. I grew up in the suburbs. Like my culture is the cheesecake factory. Like I didn't grow up in high art. And I just think that I'm an example of a person that people would maybe, you know, in some circles label as artless or uninteresting, but it's really cool to be able to write this book And as I like to say verbally, like man spread the minutiae of my existence because it's like all the things I thought I had to bury 
that weren't important and me kind of like speaking their validity into existence. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift. And over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. You start to understand, like, for example, I didn't have cable. And so I missed a lot of sort of the cultural moments. And you write about that, like the kids who would come over whose parents didn't have cable, who would want to sort of watch 90210. But I like I missed 90210, <laughs> et cetera. And I saw Saved by the Bell, but more I feel like as reruns over time, I certainly remember the Jesse Spano breakdown that you write about. It's so interesting to think about Elizabeth Berkeley and that character. I just remember thinking that she was highly unlikable. And then your sort of exegesis on this. And then I think it's really interesting that she went on to do that. You didn't write about this. Showgirls. Mm -hmm. Almost as like a course correction to the sort of strident, earnest, early feminist, right? So can you talk a bit about Saved by the Bell, and as you re-examined it, and the laugh track, and I just thought that was so fascinating and and insidious. Yeah, so I have a mini chapter called Saved by the Bell Jar about kind of like <laughs> my journey with feminism <laughs> through the lens of millennial culture. I think I was calling it like the Spano to C-SPAN pipeline. It was like, I was experimenting <laughs> with different ways to talk about feminism, but it, it ended up in this in this essay where I talk about how a lot of the you know, women I grew up with, we kind of look back now at how we didn't want to call ourselves feminists. So we were a lot older, like problematically older, and how we had a negative connotation with this term. And I was trying to really dig into like, okay, well, there's the, you know, bra burning tropes and the kind of Rush Limbaugh coined and calcified terms like feminazi that were pervasive in the 90s. There, There were elements of adult culture that I wasn't privy to. And my parents weren't saying that stuff. So like, why was I internalizing this? But I realized my first point of entry to a feminist on television, a a self-proclaimed feminist on television was Jesse Spano and Saved by the Bell, which aired in a morning block adjacent to cartoons on, it was called Teen NBC at at the time. It was Saturday morning, kind of like its Friday night counterpart. I remember Jesse also being very unlikable. When you rewatch Saved by the Bell, it's actually Jesse making a lot of very salient points about her rights, about equal rights, about closing the wage gap, about men and women in, you know, in domestic labor and 
she'll say things like, you know, both men and women should be contributing to the household. And then Slater will clap back with like, you know, we'll get right back into the kitchen type of comment. And when Jesse says something pretty insightful, the audience is completely silent. Then Slater or Zach or Screech, whoever makes fun of her and the audience roars with laughter. So when you're a nine-year-old in short pump, Virginia, and you're like, oh, when I go to high school, this is what feminists are like. And this is how boys are reacting to feminists. And Mm -hmm. even her friends, Kelly and Lisa didn't support her. They made fun of her. You're kind of internalizing a message like, oh, okay, well, if I want to be liked, if I want boys to like me and to not be a punchline, I need to not behave like Jesse. And when I was rewatching it and prepping for this book, I kind of couldn't believe how A, how manipulated a lot of these shows are by laugh tracks, because there's something called sweetening that can happen where the laugh track is added after the studio audience to punch up what the writers want to emphasize as being the comedy. And you quickly notice that Jessie is used as an object for comedy. Like she's a punchline. She's not contributing to it. And then I would notice in Boy Meets World, like, you know, Topanga, she started out kind of like hippie and alternative. And she would say these really beautiful, insightful things. And then Corey Matthews would be like, oh, you're going to be one of those girls that doesn't shave her legs. Audience roars. So it's like, okay, Mm. what is that telling me of how to be? And the second piece is that when I went back and looked at some of these shows that I loved, I noticed that the writer's room was all adult men, with the exception of one or two episodes in Saved by the Bell's case. And I just thought, wow, it is so interesting that we talk about diversity and representation. Like, yes, of course, who's on the screen matters, but who's in the writer's room and who's telling the stories really matters, too, because that's where stereotypes abound, because those men were not writing Jesse Spano as an example of an actual feminist. She was written as a character from an adult male's response to like second wave feminist stereotypes. And they found that type of woman irritating. So they wrote Jesse as an irritating character. And it just was an interesting thing for me to explore the way I internalized themes from pop culture, thinking about who was writing this and when did it contribute to a stereotype versus when did it communicate an authentic experience? Yeah. No, it's so fascinating. Not to put you on the spot, but when you think about culture now, and I don't know if you're as much as a student, I'm guessing you are, like you seem like a very keen observer of culture. Is there anything that you think that we'll similarly look back on and think that's wild? I mean, I think that besides soap brows, you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little worried that the spiked up lamination I'm going to regret, but I'm still doing it. But I think that in the past couple of years, we've realized like the girl bossification of the 2010s wasn't the vibe, the, you know, the lean in mm-hmm. of it all. I think that following that, we realized that the shape shifting of diet and health related t- terms where we just stopped saying like skinny and thin or like not eating and then would say things like intermittent fasting when it was kind of not eating. You know what I mean? Like the shape shifting yeah. of things. It's like acting Detoxing, like detox cleansing yeah 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 totally and something that's even newer probably is like skincare i, I think anti-aging is going to be just as offensive eventually as like diet culture related stuff but we're not quite there yet because it's in the name of self-care no 100 percent. i interviewed kate mann recently that episode will come out before this one and her latest book is called unshrinking And it's about fat phobia. And it's just wild. I mean, it's wild how rampant anti-fatness is in our culture and how we profess or insist that the science aligns with this. And it just doesn't. Not unilaterally, not in a tidy way. But yet it's completely acceptable, if not applauded, in a way that will be, I think, wild to reckon with and 20 years? I don't know how long it takes for these feedback cycles now. It seems like they're swifter. There are so many cultural moments. I mean, American Girl dolls. I think when I had my doll, I was obsessed from what I recall, as you point out, very expensive outfits. But I don't remember if I even read the backstory books. But I loved that exploration too, because there's a depth to them that I'd never appreciated that's sort of under the cover of like, girls playing with dolls. Is there a Mm -hmm. male corollary? No, right? Besides these superhero backstories? Good question. I don't know that there is. I mean, they started making like girl boy twin American girl dolls after my day, but I don't know if there is one because there's like the Barbie G.I. Joe parallel, right? But I don't know what the American girl one would be. But yeah, that's a topic I love to revisit because 
it's one of my earliest and most, I don't know how to explain it, like my most significant memories of consumerism without knowing that's what it was. And I just think the sending of these catalogs with this gorgeous furniture and these expensive clothes at this inaccessible price point and being there tearing through the pages at like five years old, you know, it's funny for me to think about how it was just like a very early example of like exclusivity marketing. And it just for the the comedy of me like jonesing for, you know, a kit to quilt a blanket with a muslin border or, you know, wanting a doll that came with a wooden spoon as her key accessory who lived on the Minnesota know, frontier. Like, amazing. it's just funny because I was very much in like the Malibu Barbie era, but those books got me genuinely interested in women's backstories. And what I think is really beautiful about it, if it's done well, is you know, a doll represents something young girls played with because it represented women's limitations in terms of, you know, oh, you can be a caregiver, cosplay this for life. But using that doll to explore the historical backstories of women who were excluded from history, I think is really, really cool. But it is true. Like the status, I don't know, like an, a sense of what's cool, a sense of belonging, wanting to be older, wanting to know... And then you have so much shame about yourself as a child. At least I felt that way. Like I was too old to be playing with Barbies or it was not feminist, right? When I got to a certain age, Mm. I threw away all my Barbies and my neighbor's Barbies. She was pissed. What a statement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but out of shame, which is sad. It is. I thought about that when I went to see the Barbie movie. I was like, God, it really is crazy how, I don't know, if you're a boy and you like you know, tractors and cars and sports and things marketed to little boys, like you get to keep those hobbies. But like we had to throw our dolls away or else we'd be ridiculed. And I realized like I kind of had a lack of closure with Barbies. Like you just one day walk away and decide you're over them, but you're kind of not. You just feel like you have to be. And it is an interesting experience being a young woman that I hadn't thought about before is like you're even ashamed of it while it's happening in ways that like you don't even recognize as shame at the time because... It's just whatever any authority figure is telling you or anybody you want to impress, like, it's just the truth. (laughs) You're not putting second thought to if it's valid or not. It's just like, oh, I shouldn't be playing with Barbies. No. And why? Like, what's the shame? What is the programming that we get about all of these interests? Is it specifically age? Like, you should be beyond this? Or is it you should be beyond this coupled with cultural sort of pylon that girls' interests are lowly and pathetic and embarrassing. Whereas, as you said, you know, grown men go to monster car rallies and football, and obviously there are female fans as well. And they go to, I don't know, Avengers. I mean, my husband has the worst taste in culture, but there's more energy behind him making fun of me for occasionally watching the Kardashians, you know? Meanwhile, he's like, if there's a... The lower the Rotten Tomato rating, the more inclined he is to watch a horror movie or whatever it may be. But it's acceptable for men. It's acceptable. It's it's celebrated. No, it's so true. And when I was kind of talking about the role of male authority in terms of how they perceive taste, in in the last chapter, Pumpkin Spice Girl, at first I was kind of (laughs) digging into like more history behind this perception of male authority. But- as I was writing it, and, and I remember my editor saying too, she's like, you almost don't need to over explain this sensation of you saying you like a rock band and somebody saying name five songs. Like if you're a woman, you, you've experienced this. You don't need to prove that this is a problem. It's like we've all felt like our interests were, you know, weren't sophisticated enough or they were dismissed for being a part of mass culture or whatever. And it, it was kind of true because when I was trying to dig into more history behind how this works i was trying to use anecdotes like even with soap operas like they were incredibly lucrative they were financing the entire networks yet they were the only programs that weren't reviewed formally in local newspapers because they were women's shows so it's like that conundrum of the economic viability of something versus the credit it's given is something that's a tale as old as tv and even time before then but it is interesting thinking about how, yeah, this year, fortunately, there's been that celebration of, you know, the value of women's interests. And the conversation has changed to the point where that chapter's old and almost seems trite, which is kind of funny. I think it's important regardless, because 
while we can have these overarching cultural conversations about validating our interests, those things don't usually permeate behind closed doors. And I'm still having awkward conversations with uncles and, you know, friends of my husband and people in real life that I have to overexplain my book or my podcast or justify Taylor Swift dance parties or whatever the hell it is. The optics of how evolved we are are one thing, but I think behind closed doors, it's often another story and people do need to like be conscious of sticking up for their interests. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep s-l-e-e-p dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Barbie, like that trifecta and its impact on the economy is absolutely not surprising and yet was stunning, right? And still perceived as sort of women's stuff. Whereas women have been engaged in the stuff that men, again, speaking not to essentialize, but speaking broadly, that men are interested in. Just thinking as an as a fellow author, our whole industry is supported by people like Colleen Hoover, right? She's right. a romance novelist. Her books, I don't know how many books she has in the top 100 on Amazon, but like her success is the reason that you and I can get in advance to write a book. And mm-hmm. yet we deprecate and disparage and mock and trivialize. I mean, thank God for Shonda Rhimes and her counter-programming Bridgerton. Again, another, you know, runaway success written by a woman who went to Harvard. And yet it's perceived as like dross and crap. It's interesting with my book, and and I feel like your book sort of fits in this corollary. All I wanted to do was write a book for no man's land. And because I feel like there's a market for women, because I still have yet to be interviewed by a a single man, because I think that men are just not worried that they're really not interested in women. But this no man's land of sort of approachable, smart, heavily researched, but like accessible language that's not just dressed in... Um, highfalutin vocab so that not to sort of appeal to this academic intellectual crowd and to land it in a space where most a lot of women read a lot of fiction, but they're like, I'll maybe read a couple of nonfiction books. I'll read this. This is accessible. It's fast. It moves. But it's interesting because like to also be like, oh, well, this isn't going to be reviewed in any newspapers. This isn't intellectual enough. This isn't academic enough to be taken seriously. I'm guessing that your book will have a similar thread where people are going to be really excited to talk about it. They're going to highly relate. And yet, like, 
the New York Times book review is probably not going to review your book. I could be wrong. Are they? I don't know. I, it's kind of the dilemma I've had with my whole career. I, I, I think that because I'm independent. So things, people need like an accolade or a backing of a network or some thing that precedes you to kind of qualify you to be an authority on something. And I think mm-hmm. the subject matter paired with even having millennial in the title and the press is often unfavorable treatment of millennials paired with me. Yeah, not having kind of a formal institutional like metric people can associate with me. It's a harder sell. Absolutely. And yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. But like my show has been, I've never ever really gotten any formal nods for my full-time job and podcast of six years, but it survives and thrives because of people relating to my experience as like a normal person and not like an academic. (laughs) So it'll be interesting to see if that, yeah, how that translates to the book's reception, but I'm grateful to try the material on a different channel and see how it resonates. I think that the Taylor, Beyonce, Barbie, Trifecta, obviously they got a ton of media, but I do think that it speaks to the disconnect that's only growing wider between more intellectual media, I guess that's how I would caveat, or media that perceives itself in that way, what they're Mm -hmm. interested in and what people are actually engaging with. That Venn diagram to me is shrinking in a way... Mm. That's just further underlines like you're not where people are. And I say this because I think your book's brilliant and hilarious. And it really made me think and revisit my own childhood, including and I think this is a rite of passage, right? Like doesn't every generation sort of get the shit end of the stick? Isn't that a rite of passage? Don't we speak badly of every generation? Oh, for sure. And about each other. I think everybody thinks that the people you know, who came before then aren't like relevant to their plight and think that their advice is too old fashioned or whatever. And then the people that come after you, you know, they haven't paid their dues. They don't understand. They'll never get it They're, You know, you kind of have the same gripes with the ways that they've changed as older generations do with you. I think with millennials, I think what's interesting is that With the exception of Gen Z and the Tide Pods, when I was writing it, there hadn't been such an unfavorable, consistent edit. There's the colloquial, like, okay, boomer vibe that's more recent, but like millennials from tip to tail, ever since I got into the workforce, lazy, entitled, basement dwelling, job hopping, like, go eat avocado toast and wear Uggs, you loser, like type of vibe. But then in the mid 2010s, it almost became like a caricature of itself where it was just clickbait about millennials killing major industries and economic sectors, ranging from paper napkins to diamonds to low-fat yogurt to the American dream in its entirety. And it was kind of like, what? And it's never, ever been something I was proud to call myself. I mean, they're largely marketing terms. They're birds of a feather. It's kind of a way to Myers-Briggs our birth year, sure. But there are ways that our environment, when we're coming of age, really affect a large group of people And I was kind of like, yeah, well, what about all this other stuff we identify with that you're just not going to get in the headline? I think millennials, when they look back on their lives, like we just aren't thinking of ourselves in the way that other people label us on the outside. Let me tell one person's story from the inside, because, you know, what you might think is lazy is us having like work-life balance, you know, (laughs) kind of like the terms like nosy and busybody. It's like you can label people as these things, but they're when we explore the reason for that maybe being the truth, it completely changes the definition. Yeah. Now I'm trying to think of the sweeping definition of Gen X, but I feel like we were like burners. It's latchkey kids, right? Latchkey kids. Isn't that kind of the biggest term? Yeah. Yeah. Benign neglect, drugs. I'm thinking of like sort of the record or the movies that I feel like define our generation. Empire Records. Would you say 90s grunge? 90s grunge, Cobain. Like, yes, 100%. Which, to be fair, I never felt cool enough for the primary of my generation or rebellious enough, really. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because I didn't have access to that. I mean, I had a Columbia Records subscription. Did those still exist in your generation? (laughs) I bankrupted myself on the regular. When you were like, but there's nothing here that I want. I had some really (laughs) random CDs. And every time my parents were like, you can do this for a penny. Wasn't it a penny? And then they started billing you. Yeah. It's like the magazine subscriptions. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get charged for an eternity. And that's an interesting example, what you said about rebellion. 
is kind of like these microcosms of monoculture, certain like generations experience that like are their own form of currency. And at one point to be cool means to be rebellious. And in another point to be cool to, means to be like open and accepting to everyone. Of all kind, you know, there's just always different things that hold value. And I think when I was coming of age, in the book, I talk about the difference between popular and cool. And popularity was like the word. I'm sure it still is like something people chase when they're in school, but how there was like different ways to be popular. It's like you either network and know a lot of people and people really like you, or you can be cool, which means being rebellious or into, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll, or you can have status symbols in clothes or wealth or be mean things. Yeah. Yeah. Or be mean. Yes, exactly. And me kind of pathologizing where I could hedge my bets to give you the best chance at like social acceptance, which you don't realize you're doing at the time. But in hindsight, I was like, it was all a lot of arithmetic of like, okay, if I can get a Lacoste polo and be, you know, friends with this person. And I don't know. <laughs> I desperately wanted a Lacoste polo. And I grew up in a small town where we didn't have, we eventually had catalogs. We had a Le Bon Marche two story department store, but by two story, I mean, it was very small, but it had stairs, which was a revelation in my town, which was primarily like a single story town. And we had a Benetton for some reason, but then we would drive to Spokane, Washington. This is my, like, I walked to school in 10 miles in the snow story, but once a year we would drive to Spokane, Washington, where there was a Nordstrom and the Gap and a limited two, which I know is a big theme in your book, to get back to school clothing because there was just nothing which also is probably its own relief in a way I don't even know what that looks like now but back to school shopping in person was yeah it was the event it's kind of like I didn't appreciate while I was literally growing that I had a reason to turn over my wardrobe year after year but now it's just like bloggers convincing me I needed a new capsule wardrobe every six (laughs) months but yeah that was such a big deal and going And those experiences in dressing rooms or going with friends like the mall, yeah, was just such a third place for me. And even if it wasn't in your town, it was probably an event you looked forward to. And it is kind of interesting to think about retail experiences being so different now. And that is largely why many outlets hypothesize so many kids are hanging out in Sephora's. Yeah, well, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I guess the mall was a third place for me, too. You know, as you age and then you have sort of these ongoing backdrops for novels where that's the place that you imagine. To mm-hmm. me, like the Missoula Mall is one of those places where I like think about those stores as the backdrop yeah. for so many books that I read. Like when I am imagining. Totally. God, it's formative. And I have little boys. They're acquisitive, but in completely different ways. All they want is... Robux. Oh, God. Yeah. I don't even understand that world yet. My kid's five months old, but that's all I hear about from parents of like elementary and middle schoolers. The the Robux shakedown is so intense and so real and so annoying. And then I am like, well, at least it's digital. At least they're not interested in sort of plastic crap and our house isn't full (laughs) of that stuff anymore. (laughs) But it will be interesting, like the way that Minecraft and Roblox and Fortnite and all of these games shape a generation. Like uh, when I was growing up, I I guess we had Game Boys. Yeah. Like so much of the stuff wasn't that accessible. It wasn't accessible. It wasn't handheld. I mean, I think that's a big part of it, too, is like hooking up the giant like Nintendo or Sega or N64 or whatever to the TV with the controllers on a tether when you shared a TV. And, you know, like there were just so many reasons to limit the time or access in addition to price point of the console itself that, yeah, I didn't really um, provide as much ability to like get addicted to it. I feel like, cause I couldn't have spent all my time doing it if I wanted to, like I played Mario Kart and stuff like that. And my brother played a lot of video games, but I felt a little sad thinking, wondering if I had had a phone, (laughs) would I've missed out on all this mental real estate to like process my observations, to process the longing to explore so much about the anticipation of growing up, like you said, like, I don't know, because the second I got a computer, the second that cow box of a Gateway 2000 showed up in my driveway, I was on AIM. So it's like, then at that point, that's what I wrote about. Because when I think about a certain period of my life, all I did was try to like, 
passive aggressively talk to boys in my class via way messages. And like, unfortunately, that's a huge part of millennial lore is our early like addiction to that type of technology. And we couldn't even text or anything. So yeah, I guess that's kind of my, you know, walk miles in the woods to school as AOL dial up or like texting in T9 word. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, I loved that part. And this idea of like, what are you telegraphing about your availability to other people as you sit there and like let the keyboard go idle with the hopes that their curiosity is sparked about where Kate Kennedy is, right? And what is she doing right now? But it is true, like that, the crushes, the longing, like that stuff is so essential and formative. And is that still present? It must still be present for younger generations, but there's so much more accessibility. And in a way, that's also crushing because to sort of like have the fantasy of what is my crush doing and is my crush thinking about me without being able to sort of track them on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever. I don't know. It's wild. I think there's something really funny about like we did all that stuff and there were no stakes in terms of like being famous or getting a lot of validation elsewhere. Like it's one thing for kids to you know, do stuff online now because they want like recognition or to become an influencer. It's extra funny to me that like all of that horsepower was just simply to get attention. It was just simply for people to think like, I'm doing great. I'm super busy. He'll curse the day he left me. Like the amount of brain power devoted to just like making people jealous, making someone passive aggressively know I was mad at them, or just like trying to find a boyfriend the in electronic means is like really funny to me. And it just like was an early course in online branding that I think I carried with me weirdly to my career. Like it's a skill yeah. in and of itself to figure out how to adequately convey yourself online. And create scarcity. And right? create scarcity, yes. And like a lack of availability. I mean, it is early online branding and in a way that's so insistent now. And you have to wonder like what generation is going to break that or is it so coded in us that it'll only become sort of more monstrous? But yeah, now, I I mean, my my youngest wants to be a YouTube star, a la Mr. Beast. But and I'm just Mm. like, okay, I'm just going to watch you hopefully grow out of this. Well, at the same time, trying not to disparage his interests or shame or mock him for doing something that I think is insane or wanting something that I think is like obviously beneath him. But who am I to say? I don't know. I know. Well, I think the problem with influencer careers is we just don't have the data yet for the longevity. So you don't want people to set up their entire lives around a business model that may cease to exist and like tomorrow. Yeah. And it gets back to that sort of me, we, the, like the cosmic egg where and i i have this conversation with friends too who are writers or podcasters and you see that you can easily trace this throughout culture but where their story they are the thing in part because of maybe trauma or an exceptional childhood or a lot of interest in their particular story and that's very dangerous because when you are the thing and you have to manufacture relevance newness And you become sort of addicted to this idea of staying resonant with people in that way, not through connecting to the we or commenting on culture or bigger, bigger stories. I think it's very, very dangerous when your identity is sort of the core commodity in a way. And like the deep objectification of yourself where you're like, how am I going to blow up my life again to have more content? Oh, for sure. And I think that that's a lot of the tougher stories we see, the tougher arcs in the influencer world, I think, have a lot to do with, you know, at a point you're just mining your life for copy, Mm -hmm. for content. And like, it's good to get inspiration from your life, but I'm very conscious of not overly tapping into that in a way where my relationships would implode. I always kind of marvel that even comedians can, you know, joke about their parents or siblings or friends as much as they can, because to me, the telling of a story or the piece of copy at somebody else's expense in my real life in favor of my digital one, like just never feels worth it. Like even in my book, I talk about myself a lot, but very rarely, actually hardly at all, will I talk about anybody that I know in real life doing certain things because I don't I don't know it's just like a line I don't really feel comfortable crossing and I just 
if you even feel like with these family vloggers that like so many awful things have happened, you know, the family YouTubers like eight passengers and stuff. It's just it's so sad to think of these people's childhoods being mined for content in a way that they didn't consent to. And yeah, I, I have no clue where it's going to go, but I feel like we're at least more conscious of it now. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed-release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I tried to do this in my book as well, but the way that you use your own life, sort of centering it as like a typical suburban teen existence of like a blonde Bible belt or Jesus loving, you know, all the different right, sort right. of factors, but it's in service to something that's, I think, collective, at least for a pretty wide amount of people. And I think when people use their story, again, as sort of the scaffolding to make larger cultural points, that has a lot of legs. And I think you're hitting a drumbeat for people where they're like, oh, this is my story too, in a way that I doesn't feel like you're sort of like, well, what shenanigans do I need to spark in order to be interesting? Yeah, this book is like kind of shenanigan free because probably why I loved your book so much. Like I'm just a cooperative gal through and through. <laughs> I don't have a lot of stories of rebellion or crazy things. I have stories of me trying on different versions of myself and dabbling in different things that would feel at odds with my gut. And then I would be like, well, I, certainly I'm wrong. Everyone else is right. Until you kind of find your own like inner voice and identity. I guess what I'm ultimately trying to argue for is that just because something isn't like necessarily objectively unique or exceptional doesn't mean that it's not distinct and doesn't mean that yeah. it's not a story worth telling. And I think that that even was kind of my own mental gymnastics I had to go through to even feel worthy of writing the book. That was a process I went through like creatively just being like, just because it's common, just because it's basic or average or this or that does not mean that it doesn't, you know, deserve to be on paper. And I think in what I tried to do is speak to general themes a lot of people could relate to, but with references get specific enough that for every 50 you miss, the one you catch excites you or sparks something that it makes the specificity worth it. So yeah, it was kind of a balance of like, how can I relate to a lot of people through my stories? Well, I'm not throwing anyone specific under the bus. 
while also being so niche to my experience, you're kind of tapping into that psychology of meme culture where the whole thing is like, oh my God, this is so me. I thought nobody else did this, but the reason it's popular is because a lot of people do. Yeah, because you're hitting these huge cultural tropes and themes. You and I don't remember, Janessica, Vanessa, Vanessica. <laughs> <My fake> <laughs> I know. Like, I, honestly, when I tell you I lie in bed and I'm like, Vanessica's going to know who she is. And I feel bad about including our aim wars. It's just not in my nature to like say anything <laughs> inflammatory that that's like the craziest thing I say. But yeah, like I've had some readers say like, oh, my God, the first two chapters, I was texting all my friends saying this is so me. But then I got to the church chapter and I was like, oh, no, it's not. And I'm like, that was a risk to include that because it is specific. But I don't think it's irrelevant to like the broader situation we have with like Christian nationalism. Like, I think it's good for people to understand the nuts and bolts of evangelical culture. And beyond that, what is distinct about millennials is how it seeped into our sex ed and abstinence only sex education was how these parent interest groups that were conservative informed things like dress codes, even like there were so many ways purity culture permeated into secular spaces. I thought it was worth calling out as something people might not even realize is kind of millennial. It's like that WWJD era. No, totally. WWJD. And it's so interesting as someone who, you know, had a secular childhood, culturally Jewish, but I wrote a book about the seven deadly sins being initially being like, these have absolutely nothing to do with me. And then, but I think religion is culture. It's so primary to culture and it programs all of us. And of course, we're influenced directly and indirectly, consciously and unconsciously by so much of this. So I'm glad you included that. And it's funny because you were talking about how like the draw for you was music, dance parties. And I had an evangelical Christian neighbor who brought me to Sunday school once or twice, which my mom was just inflamed about, but knew better than to sort of shut it down. But I loved it because we crafted. We made like snowball styrofoam angels and stuff. So fun. (laughs) The best time. I mean, don't they say that about the mega churches? It's like a party with all the services that you need. That's like kind of the joke. I guess that's the dichotomy I'm expressing in all the chapters is like, it was problematic, but I had a great time. Okay. Yeah. You know, getting somebody to a, a weekend co-ed lock-in at a laser tag place with extra cheese pizza, it's not very hard to do when you're in middle school and you can't drive yet. And in, in hindsight, I'm like, what a sneaky form of evangelizing. It looks like good old-fashioned fun. Most parents, regardless of denomination, aren't really going to contest a supervised fun at a church. Like, how out of hand can it get? So a lot of kids would go to these things that had absolutely no religious affiliation and like leave with their soul saved. And it's kind of like, wow, that is yeah. crazy that you can speak to kids about their souls being damned and their purity and virginity and sexual immorality, like without consent of the parents, with them just thinking you're going to water ski. I mean, they're pretty intense things to tell a, a minor who's just learning about their own body to shame them for the things that make them human before they even have a chance to engage with those parts of themselves. And I have friends in therapy to this day from those times. And I have friends who were like, oh, I didn't take it that seriously. And we all internalize things differently. So I wanted to be good. I wanted to be cooperative. So if somebody's telling me do X, Y, Z, or else you'll go to the devil's air fryer, like I'm going to be pretty scared of that. And it's going to be something I think about constantly. Well, and I think that you just said it, afraid. So much of our wiring as mammals is around fear and fear of loss of approval, fear of loss of safety and security, fear of loss of control. And so much of one in a millennial is about that, like that fear of loss of approval, that intense human desire to belong and within our belonging to find safety, security, approval, and control, right? To be sort Mm -hmm. of certain about your place in the world. It's so natural. And yet, for some reason, I think because in that quest for individuality, we all just don't want to accept how programmed we are by Mm -hmm. culture. It's intense. Well, in writing, I I turned the book in right when I found out I was um, pregnant and you know, was editing and doing the audiobook while pregnant. And it it was also kind of a reflection to me in terms of like go, going forward, thinking about that with my kid or kids. Like, I think we all grow up having a version of us we present to our parents and then feeling like we have this complex inner world that they'll never understand. 
And I think my mom reading this was like, oh my God, we were always close. We always had a good, she had no idea any of this was going on. And for me, it was kind of like an example of there is a point where you can nurture to your liking, but kids are going to be very affected by the several other environments they find themselves in. And I think it was just a good exercise for me going into becoming a parent to revisit what ended up mattering, because I think my mom was surprised to hear that, like in the least likely of places, like a church camp that was like so formative for me when to her, I just wanted to water ski, you know, so you got to be careful about what figures of authority people are around when they're young. Yeah. And I think to that point, it's always also surprising as you age and you go back and inventory your life to see what memories stick. Oh, yeah. And I don't know how predictable it is and what proves to be formative. And I always want to tell people, too, because I think sometimes the questions I'll get are like, God, you have a good memory. I don't remember stuff like this, almost as if like there's something wrong with them. But like I journaled a lot and my mom saved everything I ever made. I have like an archive and I also podcast for a living. And so if I'm, you know, reeling off a plot of a Disney Channel original movie from memory. It's because I looked it up six months ago. It's not because I just remember everything I ever did. So I always want to caveat that, like, it's not that I have a better memory than anybody else. I think that I just like, I don't know. I think some people are more prone to like journal and write and log stuff. And I felt very determined to log a lot of the mundane aspects of my life in ways I'm grateful for now, but I'm not sure it was normal. (laughs) (laughs) It's a public service because as you recounted so many of those cultural moments. I was like, oh, I had not, I hadn't thought about, well, I had been thinking about the Spice Girls because of the Beckham documentary, but like I hadn't thought of the Spice Girls and I forgot about their chupa chups, but thank you for the reminder. (laughs) People really remember those lollipops, I find. Yeah. (laughs) Even if nothing else. (laughs) I know this conversation was a little different than what you might expect on Pulling the Thread. But I love Kate, and I loved One in a Millennial. It's so smart and funny and fun and wise. It's just a romp, a nostalgia romp, that then she lands with this these moments of cultural analysis. And specifically about what it is to be a girl and the way that our culture socializes us to think that our interests are so lame, silly, dumb, trite, embarrassing. She writes, a younger version of me, to use her words, would be so pissed if I grew up to be an adult who parroted the thing other adults always said to her, that none of this matters. My life experiences mattered to me then, even when I was told they'd turn out to be insignificant or that I was being too dramatic or emotional. And they matter to me now because regardless of something's objective importance, it was important to me and shaped me into the person I became. Many of us spent our whole lives shrinking ourselves, our pain, our bodies, and our existence to make other people comfortable, feeling like our job was to make space for others and not to take up space ourselves. And turns out, as I've been writing to you, I'm also writing to a future version of me, too, saying, don't you dare forget who you were and tell me to shrink when it's taken me all these years to stand proudly, plain and tall. That last thing is a reference to Sarah Plain and Tall, which she also writes about, which I'm sure many of you have read. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio, If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. 
available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next time. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.